So welcome back to the podcasts of the Royal New Zealand College of Urgent Care. My name is Guy Melrose, and if you're listening to this, I'm presuming that you have an interest or you at least practice in urgent care. And if that's the case, then it's highly recommended that you read the Journal of Urgent Care Medicine, which is the, the journal that best represents the work that we do in urgent care. Um, there's a number of good reasons to read it. There's uh, original articles, original um, papers published, and there's all sorts of opinion pieces, and there's the abstracts of uh, urgent care, which uh, one of our fellows, um, Ivan Coe, um, puts out every month. So there's a lot of really good stuff that we should be reviewing. And it was when I was reviewing um, uh, an editorial recently that I came across a, a topic that, um, that that hit ho- hit close to... to um, my passions, and that was titled The Value of Repeat Vital Signs. And it was um, a piece that was arguing for why we should probably be considering repeating vital signs more frequently than we do in urgent care. And it was written by Dr. Joshua Russell, who's the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Urgent Care and who has um, been on the podcast before. And Josh has kindly agreed to, to chat to us about about vital signs and about his um, reasoning in, in writing the piece. So welcome back, Josh. Thank you for, for joining us all the way from um, Washington State. Is that right? You're up in the... That is correct. The yeah, Northwest. in the Pacific Northwest. So you're, you're enjoying a cold Christmas pending... Uh, we're recording this just before Christmas, so you're, you're looking forward to a nice cold Christmas with all the trappings of a, of a Northern Hemisphere Christmas. Well, down here we're sweltering under the, the sun and and uh, humidity that's currently going through the Southern Hemisphere. But um, thank you for rejoining us again. And yeah, I think if we jump straight in, your, your piece, um, as I say, kind of resonated with me because it's something I've recognised we probably should be doing a little bit more of. And you... you um, you, you outlined a couple of scenarios in which you felt we should be doing more vital sign checks. So, um, what prompted you to to write this? What was what was your sort of journey towards having this sort of uh, opinion? Well, first of all, I just thank you for inviting me back on the podcast to talk about something that is, admittedly, probably one of the less sexy topics because it's so mundane, but I am a self-professed vital sign nerd. And I think even though vital signs are mundane, they are so fundamental and critical to good clinical practice, especially when you're doing what we do in urgent care, which is trying to see a large number of patients who are undifferentiated with little uh, clinical data and trying to weed out the needles in the haystack where the patients are presenting with early or maybe not so early um, versions of serious illness or injury. And we don't have a lot of tools in urgent care. We don't often have advanced imaging. We don't have every patient that walks in placed on a cardiac monitor. Um, We don't have stat labs or the ability to just observe patients, you know, for hours on end, like is often the case in emergency departments. So vital signs really represent immediately available data that give us the critical information to the question that really is top of mind is before we even get to a diagnosis is, is this patient in front of me safe to go home today? Are they stable or not? And um, when you are checking vital signs, and you get one set that's really just one moment in time. And you often hear uh, 
trainees in the States, you know, presenting patients and they'll say the patient is stable and you take a look at the chart and they have one set of vital signs. So, you know, really you don't know that they're stable. You just know that at that moment in time, things didn't look too bad, but what the future holds is, is hard to say. And why not just get a second set of vitals and, and get that reassurance for yourself and the patient? Yeah, I like that. How do you monitor stability? Because that one set of data could be on a downward trend or an upward trend, and you're you're just seeing that snapshot. So, it's a good way of of thinking. You know, obstable when you've only got one set is um, is an that's an incorrect statement to make, isn't it? Um, you do say at the beginning. Well, I think, of- can I even just go and say? I think of the analogy of of the stock market. Um, it's re- readily accessible, but. If you're wondering if a stock is going to be a good buy or not, the immediate price of that stock at this moment gives you very little information. But if you look back to three months, six months prior and say, oh, the stock was, you know, lower or higher, that gives you a lot more information. And I don't think there's any investor who is, you know, not a complete novice who doesn't look at some historic values of a stock before they purchase it. And that's because that's how you understand trends is you look for multiple data points and one set of vitals is a single data point. Hmm. Yeah. When you think of ICU or or wards based medicine, and they've got those charts with tracking the data over a prolonged period of time, they can spot the downturns quite easily looking at those trends. And it's part of what they do to, to spot that deteriorating patient. But obviously, as you alluded to, we don't have that time to observe for the hours and days that, that they do there. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning of your piece that um, you, you concede rather that you're not saying that everybody should have repeat vitals. There are, there are conditions where one set is just enough. And, um, and then you go on to st- make two scenarios that you think is the ones we should be focusing on. And, um, and I think that's sensible because yeah, it isn't feasible to, to redo them or practical. And, and certainly in a time um, stressed clinic, it's it, it's not a good use of resources. But the two that you scenarios that you mention here is if there's one or more significantly abnormal value or if the patient has high risk complaint or has poor underlying health status. Um, so if we start with that first one, um, if there's one outlier um what what are your thoughts around that as a scenario and why is it important we recheck right so the first answer is that it's clear from multiple emergency department studies at least in adult patients and we could talk maybe later about how that might not exactly be true for pediatrics as much but for certainly for adult patients there is a strong correlation between short-term bad outcomes and being discharged with abnormal vital signs. So ergo, if you have one set of vital signs and it is abnormal, then you can't be sure that the patient is not going to be at risk for a bad short-term outcome until you are sure that the vital signs are normalizing. And to even take a step back further, I really think that it helps to think of the definition of, like mentioned, stability, but the inverse or 180 degrees from stability is an emergency. And an emergency is defined as where a clinical status of a patient declines without rapid intervention. You know, I mentioned some examples in the editorial, like, you know, an appendix that is inflamed will rupture without intervention. 
So if someone has appendicitis, then you would expect their vital signs to worsen over time. I mean, certainly there's no 100% in life, but in the majority of cases, that would be the case. So if someone has some vague abdominal pain and appendicitis is a consideration, and they per perhaps are a little tachycardic when they come in, perhaps a little hypotensive, a little tachypnic, then you sit on them for 30 minutes, say, I'll come back and recheck you, kind of make a decision about disposition at that point. You recheck the vitals and their heart rate is normalized, their blood pressure has improved. Well, then that gives you some sense that they're likely, you know, not suffering an emergency because you've not intervened and their vital signs have improved. If the converse is true, well, then that significantly raises the uh, the likelihood of an emergency. And that's really what we're trying to identify is where the emergencies because we can't deal with them in urgent care. So we want to send those patients to the emergency department, as the name would imply, and deal with the urgencies where we are capable of of doing so. And you mentioned in your, your piece again that the documentation of that child with the, the raised heart rate and, and high temperature, it's not just reassuring for you to make that discharge um, decision, but I guess the six-month time when you get the letter from of complaint or, or some investigation going on, how can you prove that this person was stable if you haven't done the, the test? So it's, it's, you may have done everything right and the patient may be fine to go home, but the, the, the proof isn't quite there and the observation is not a, the vital sign is not a difficult thing to redo. It's not particularly time consuming to, uh, to repeat a, a heart rate and, um, and 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 then you can write it down and it's there medical legally you're much on you're on much safer ground in those situations right it's much easier to defend a chart when there and everything that's objective in the chart corresponds to whatever the clinical impression was so certainly patients can go on to have a bad outcome if they have normal vital signs and a seemingly benign complaint but if they have abnormal vital signs and you don't address them um, or, or repeat them, then that is easy fodder to, to undermine your, you know, clinical acumen and credibility, because certainly, you know, they teach us in medical school and, and throughout our training, the value of vital signs. And we all know that on some level, but it, our behavior belies a different sort of, you know, um, uh, approach to consideration of vital signs if we are seeing significantly abnormal vital signs and not repeating them. And how much do you reckon this, th there's a number of factors that come into this. There's busyness, volume of patients to see, and, and there's also a kind of um, a sharing of duties in a clinic in terms of who, who, who gets um, assigned certain roles and responsibilities within a clinic and I think you mentioned before we, we started recording in, in America you've got a number of different um, uh, kind of clinical assistant, assistant type um, uh, roles and, and nursing uh, staff who might be responsible for doing them certainly in New Zealand we have um, uh, triage nurses doing our uh, the majority of the observations initially when patients present, but some clinics might have healthcare assistants and, um, and and there are, I believe, some kind of clinical assistant type roles developing in, in the urgent care setting. But do, do you think that part of this problem is that it's physicians have kind of offloaded this responsibility and then 
and then kind of are neglecting it because they think it's somebody else's job? And or is it that these people are too busy to ask them to redo do the the, the, the vital sign checks? Why is this kind of happened? Why 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 do we have this gap? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. The physician is the leader um, in the United States. We have a lot of PAs and nurse practitioners also functioning as the clinic leader. But whoever the clinician on duty is the leader of the team by default, and their behavior or consideration for vital signs will be emulated by the, the staff who has less training and sort of looks to the clinician for guidance. So if a clinician is not concerned or seemingly not concerned about vital signs that are abnormal, then the staff is going to follow suit. And conversely, you know, in most cases, these clinical staff that are um, significantly less trained than the, the physician on duty will start taking vital signs more, more seriously if the physician uh, asks them to, to be repeated when they're abnormal. So it's really setting expectations, I think. Um, additionally, like having a triage nurse would be amazing. Most urgent cares have no nurses in um, the States, and it's largely due to the cost of a medical assistant or what you it sounds like you call a healthcare assistant, but somebody, you know, who's trained in blood draws and, and vital sign collection is, is much less expensive to pay uh, um, for labor costs. So we will typically have a medical assistant and a uh, physician assistant or nurse practitioner, sometimes a physician, but there's nobody really with that nursing skill set that's going to be realizing potentially even that a heart rate of you know, 160, 170 in a non like infant is, is particularly problematic and, and should be repeated. So for those reasons, it's, it's even better to think that this is something that should be protocolized so that it takes any sort of clinical judgment out of the picture for the non clinician in the, in the clinic, because they, they don't, they're not clinicians and they don't have clinical judgment per se, not for any other reason other than they just don't have the training to have that skill set. Yeah, and I guess, and it shouldn't be beyond the the physician to repeat the the um, the vitals themselves during the examination or during the you know the, the the discharge process. Putting a little clip on a finger to get a oxygen saturations and a heart rate can be done whilst giving discharge paperwork and and just talking to your patient so it, it isn't necessarily an, a, a huge task for for us to be doing if the the other people in the clinic are overstretched as, as many clinics are at the moment um you mentioned in your piece regression toward the mean um as one way of um kind of explaining the importance of of, of this but you also go on to i, I, I like the way you also use the the quiet word and um, and the kid who's now much happier when the parents bring them in rather embarrassed saying you should have seen them earlier kind of thing but um, the, the regression towards the mean what is that and why is it relevant to this discussion well I'm glad the examples I used are uh, universal enough phenomenon that regardless on which side of the pond you're on Absolutely. that they ring true <laughs> so you know, it's interesting as human beings, we don't really have a mind that's built for probabilities and statistics. Um, if you think about it, uh, geometry was um, discovered, invented in the 
you know, thousands of years ago um, by Euclid and arithmetic by um, by the people of Arabia in the you know first millennia of the um, AD era or CE era, if you prefer. But statistics didn't really become a thing until the 18th century. Um, and that's because it's not something that we intuitively grasp. But regression to the mean is such a powerful concept, even though it's incredibly dry uh, at first glance. So that's why I gave some examples. But most simply put is that uh, if you have that the bell curve is should be respected because most phenomena that are observed um, over observation, the observations that occur over time are follow this bell curve or normal distribution. So if you get something, an observation, whether it be a heart rate or a hemoglobin level, whatever the case may be, some objective measurement, and it seems extreme, then if you repeat it, it's much more likely to be closer to a, an average value in settings where there's not significant abnormalities where the mean is shifted that is to say so in a good example of like significant pathology would be um the pain out of proportion to exam sort of uh differential that we think of like mesenteric ischemia mesenteric ischemia or um uh necrotizing uh soft tissue infections these type of conditions tend to you know progress to death pretty quickly if there's not intervention even sometimes if there is so the mean uh, for these conditions, whether it be the pain score or vital signs or lab values is going to be outside of the range of normal physiology. So if you get that, get a value for a heart rate and for example, in someone who's got um, neck fash, it's probably going to be high. And if you repeat, it, it's going to continue to be high. That's because the mean is outside of the normal range. Whereas if someone um, has a minor illness or something like a minor case of cellulitis, they may have a high heart rate when they come in, but because it's not a significant abnormality in their physiology, that repeat heart rate should be closer to normal. Um, and that's how you kind of figure out where the mean is. And if the mean's far from normal, then that's where the that's where you can be assured that there's a problem. Conversely, if you see a more normalized value, that is regression to the mean. Um, and that that those values tend to normalize in most of our patients so the majority of the time we should be reassured but it is a it's a nice hard stop to say okay this is outside the normal range let's actually see which direction this patient is going with something objective other than just my clinical judgment yeah because as you mentioned at the start urgent care isn't emergency medicine so we're not really dealing in life-threatening conditions all the time we're sifting through the population who are generally okay and have an urgent condition that can be managed and sent home and we're just trying to pick up on those ones who need to be referred and if they come in obviously septic straight away those are easy they're the easy ones the obvious appendicitis is easy it, those sort of ones but the, it's the gray area in between and gathering information over time is the thing that helps us make that decision and you mentioned uh, doing lab tests and time and these sorts of things, but um, it, it it doesn't cost us anything to repeat a heart rate or a blood pressure. It's the, the equipment is bought and paid for. It's sitting in the in the clinic, 
uh, it, there really isn't an excuse not to to utilize this as another weapon to make that decision and justify your referral if necessary because if you're phoning somebody and you think they have necrotizing fasciitis saying they've got persistent tachycardia despite good analgesia is is, is a much stronger referral than just looking and going i think that's necrotizing fasciitis and referring without doing that so I, I, it, it gives us um a lot more strength in determining those cases that in the gray area that aren't obviously sent home and obviously sent to the hospital and um yeah it, it, it i like the way that that regression to the mean uh, model just tells us why those ones who you do send home are going home and those that aren't are outside that and therefore um you send them up and and um I'd encourage people to read your, your editorial and the examples that you give there. Uh, you go on to talk about high-risk scenarios. Um, what, what do you mean when you, when you say that? That was your second scenario point. Um, what, is, what is a high risk in, in, your, in your mind? So I think that the high-risk scenarios would be times when the patient is high-risk by their underlying health status or chronic conditions and or um, they have a high-risk complaint. So that would be things where the differential diagnosis can, contains life-threatening or you know significantly debilitating conditions. Um, common examples would be chest pain, abdominal pain, syncope, um, headache can even be included in there. So those those sort of things where they do people do come in with these issues and a lot of the time they are benign conditions, but the differential does contain potentially life-threatening conditions. Those are the ones where that extra data point gives you so much guidance. And I think I love the term you use, gray area, um, because that's how we illuminate gray areas is by collecting extra data. And the data that is available to us is most readily is is the vital sign. And I do want to also encourage the listeners because I think it's such a great point you bring up is we can check vital signs, especially with automatic blood pressure cuffs, which are usually available to us and, and a finger pulse ox there, you have essentially an entire set of vital signs. And it's so well received by a patient to have a doctor checking their vitals. Um, it's so well appreciated by the rest of the staff to see that you're pitching in as a, as a team member that you're not only doing yourself a favor in terms of good medical care for the patient, but you're also setting a tremendous example for like being that leader that you you know are by default of the clinic. Yeah, I agree. It, it, when things get busy, it's all hands to the pump, isn't it? And so a patient might be waiting for something, and if it's something that you can do, it makes... The nurse's life easier, for example, in, in, in our clinics, if you can do the dressing after suturing somebody up and that patient can then leave, the bay becomes free for another patient and the nurse might be up to their elbows in a plaster cast in a screaming child and another 10 things to do before that. And you know, doing, we shouldn't necessarily silo ourselves in a this is our job and their job kind of thing. We, we should be looking at what's best for the patient and the, and moving the clinic forward, shouldn't we? And not, uh, um, yeah, and, and not, not saying it's not our role, but, um, so I've mentioned how urgent care is definitely getting busier here in 
New Zealand the last year or so, we're seeing clinics really under the pump in terms of patient numbers, and uh, this has been affected by staffing levels, both due to illness, but also um, as, as the world's opening up, people are traveling again and going off on adventures and things. And so it, it, it's definitely a, a common thread around this country, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the same in the UK, and um, I'd be interested to hear if it's the same in the US. But clinics are, are, are really busy, and as a result, what we're finding is that patients are waiting longer from time of presentation to time of being seen, and they're, they're having their initial assessment by the nurse and, and some vitals done, and then it may be a few hours before they're then seen. And one of the things I thought of when I read your piece was that's a situation that a physician should be thinking how old is this data that's in front of me? You mentioned at the beginning about that one set of data doesn't say somebody's stable. Um, it's probably fine for an ankle sprain, but is it fine for somebody who's got abdominal pain to have waited three hours for us not repeating their vital signs? And so um, that's one area I think that we should be uh, definitely thinking about repeating those observations to again, document for medical legal reasons, if nothing else, that this person is definitely stable. So um, what's your experience in America at the moment in terms of waiting times? And what are your thoughts on that kind of when to repeat vitals in people who have waited a period of time? Yeah, thanks for raising that issue. And I hope uh, the listeners will check out the, I believe it's going to be February uh, issue of the Journal of Urgent Care Medicine, because you um, wrote a lovely follow-up editorial um, suggesting some practice around this and repeating vitals for people who've been waiting, but it's definitely a problem, perennial problem, worse problem than it had been in the States uh, with respect to wait times. And the the vital signs when they are historic are uh, you can, not only a snapshot in time, but an old snapshot in time. It's almost like, you know, we wouldn't give potentially like NSAIDs to somebody who are wondering about their renal function, if the only renal function we can find on file was a creatinine from two or three years ago, um, if especially if they're an older patient. And, you know, it's like when we look at the stars in the sky, we're not seeing that star or even the moon as it is now, we're seeing it as it was when that light left it. And we don't know the actual state of it at this moment. So keeping that in mind that we're looking at a historic snapshot is especially important, like you said, in the cases that are fall into those categories. Yeah. And you're looking at old data and you are trying to make a decision about the patient as they are right now, then keep in mind that's an old, an old snapshot. And remember that if it's a high risk complaint and, or somebody who had initially abnormal vital signs that it bears uh, repeating those vital signs for for all the reasons that we've mentioned before, but that is definitely given the state of wait times, a third category, I would say that you astutely um, pointed out that is worth, you know, considering is just how long is this, how old is this data that I'm, I'm looking at? Um, do you have a story? What, what made that come to your mind? I'm curious guy um, that you were thinking about, um, yeah, you know, it, vital signs changing. So I, a lot of things go through my mind a lot of times, and, and it's sometimes when I read something like this that it just triggers um, a thought that I may have had. And it's something I'd certainly noticed just with the progression of waiting times in recent years. And um, I've 
just found myself personally thinking, well, this thing I'm about to write is based on data from three hours ago. Or even some occasions, patients have actually left the clinic and come back. And so they've sort of gone off to do some shopping and then they come back. And so there's been an even longer wait, even though they haven't been in the clinic that time. It's sort of a combination of chatting to people and just, just, just kind of thinking about it as the average wait time seemed to be going up. Uh, it, yeah, it's definitely something we're noticing. Longer wait times, more stressed staff, and, and, and just the idea that a, a, a vital sign is so easy to do. It isn't requesting a blood result that you need to wait hours to come back. It costs nothing. It, it, it's non-invasive. And, and, and yeah, it just seemed like a, a sensible thing to do. And, um, and then you, it was kind of like fate. Reading your, your piece was like, oh, Josh thinks Josh is having the same thoughts, and it, and it justified a lot of, of things that I thought about. And it would be interesting if the people who are listening um, had any comments about this, because as you mentioned, I've I've written a, a sort of a, a response piece, which I don't know the answers, but I sort of suggested, well, we should probably be if somebody's waited two to four hours, we should probably be repeating vitals. But I don't know if it's possible to stipulate a definitive time. A lot of it will take into account your own personal kind of gut feeling about the patient and, and a whole load of other other things but um, I quite like some emergency department protocols I've found have said that if you're discharging somebody they should have a set of vitals that were done within the last hour um, before discharging and I, I quite like that as a metric because um, it, it it's quite a um, in terms of putting that line in the sand to say when this person left this clinic they were hemodynamically stable is is, is quite a it's a good reassuring thing to do. So, um, yeah, I'd definitely be interested in in the thoughts of the wider population of urgent care clinicians as to what they think about doing more vital signs and doing them, not, not just blanketing everybody with them, but doing them in targeted specific situations like um, Josh has mentioned in his piece. Yeah, well, it is to your observation such a simple process to do so it is something though that if it's not protocolized it will get skipped because everyone's just trying to be as efficient as possible and move patients through through the centers but like in any sport what wins games is actually doing the fundamentals well it's not that you have some um you know one or two outstanding plays or in medicine one or two outstanding diagnoses that um that make a great shift. It's that you did the fundamentals, like collecting a good history on every patient and, and then, you know, getting an appropriate set of data that's relevant for the, uh, the differential that you create. So, and I mean, that's actually, a, a, as an aside, an example of regression to the mean is, is an outstanding performance is, is great, but if it's not repeated, then your, your mean is not exceptional but what makes an exceptional like average performer in medicine or where, where your average performance is exceptional is that you're doing the fundamentals well with every patient because you're not you're going to miss things if you're not collecting a rigorous history in a regimented way and you're not repeating repeating vital signs so i think that's really what needs to happen for most centers is to not that there's a universal protocol but that's there there is some protocol that the staff is familiar with I also adhere to this, the Swiss cheese model of error, whereby, you know, the more levels of cheese, of Swiss cheese you have lined up, the less likely something you drop is going to fall through all the holes. And that extra set of vitals 
is essentially an extra layer of Swiss cheese. And maybe that's the the piece that's going to catch something that would have otherwise fallen through all the holes and then a critical diagnosis would have been missed. So as we are, to your point, working with burnt out, stressed out people that are not coming to work, maybe um, as uh, crisp and and with the same sort of cognitive acumen as they had before the pandemic, or we have people that weren't previously working in urgent care that are filling in because we are losing staff. All the more reason to have these layers of Swiss cheese in place because these people are not operating in a familiar environment and they, you need these checkpoints to to catch sometimes these um, looming disasters that patients may walk in with. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. And the, the example outside of medicine that I always think of is the, the airline industry. And just something simple like putting the landing gear down, which is obviously an important thing for an aeroplane to do to land properly. And I think if you surveyed most pilots over a long career, they probably haven't had a problem where their landing gear didn't come down. And and therefore you, they could say, why do we constantly check and double check when we put the gear down as part of a, a process during landing to say the gear is put the gear down, the gear is down, and then the, the two pilots um, check each other that it, they're definitely down. Why do they do that when planes hardly ever land without the landing gear? And the answer is, well, they hardly ever land without the landing gear because they do these checks to make sure that they always put it down. And if they weren't ingrained in them that during landing, this is one of the things you check to make sure is, is in place then there probably would be a lot more planes that landed. There was a, a Pakistani airline plane that landed without its landing gear down a couple of years ago that ended in, in a disaster um, and, and other, other situations. There would be more of those if it wasn't the culture of the airline industry to say, do this as a, as a, as a routine. And so yeah, if we had a routine to check vitals in the scenarios that we've mentioned here, more frequently, um, we will prevent those major deteriorating patients being missed. Not not all of them, as obviously medicines are uh, humans are a, an unusual entity, and that no, nobody's perfect. But uh, but yeah, I, I definitely think there's some element of the aviation world that we need to bring in, and and they use the Swiss cheese model as you've as you've mentioned before to prevent that, and that should be our aim rather than. Um, going a little bit more on hunch and, and gut instinct we, we we should be prepared to do a few things like this and it's such a simple thing um as we've mentioned so many times it's we've bought the gear it's sitting there in the clinic room you may as well use it, you know, it it's not uh, yeah, it's not going to cost you it's not like you're having to put a, a dollar into the machine to get a blood pressure every time you do it so um so yeah that, that's my two penneth on that and um as i mentioned um I would encourage everybody listening to go to jucm.com, the Journal of Urgent Care Medicine, and and, and read the the articles that come out every month, the, the, the original papers, and um, the, as I mentioned, the abstracts uh, that Ivan does, and, and just everything, the editorials. They're, they're, the importance of this is that, yes, emergency medicine can be can cover a lot of what we do general practice and family medicine can cover some of what we do but there's this bit in the middle that is urgent care and we we do think we do need to focus on what's specific to us 
in urgent care that's a little different to ED and a little different to general practice. And that's where where your journal, Josh, sits so strongly is it, it, it makes the case for what we do, not for what other people do that can sort of be crossed, like smudged over to, to cover us a little bit. You, you, you look at things specifically like this case, and even with your background in emergency medicine, you're still looking at this very much from an urgent care point of view. So people should definitely be bookmarking this for um for reading and would you you're, you're keen for people to submit things to you for for publication as well so what what can you say to them about getting their 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 thoughts and in, in on 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 your um on your papers well yeah thank you for the opportunity to uh you know solicit a little bit to to the listeners but we have a tremendous opportunity in urgent care really because we don't know. The science of urgent care largely doesn't exist. So I mentioned some emergency department studies earlier where we said, oh, they showed that patients who were discharged with abnormal vitals went on to have bad outcomes. We don't know that that's true for urgent care patients because it's a different population. So really almost any study that's been done either in, in family practice settings or uh, GP clinics emergency departments can be replicated to see, is that true for our population? Because we don't know that until it's in investigated, but we have to start somewhere. So we do publish original research. If it's, you know, it's peer reviewed, all of our articles, um, all of our clinical articles are peer reviewed. And so if it passes the mustard of peer review, then we are really, really keen to publish research that's done in urgent care but also like you did you had some thoughts and you wrote an editorial and you submitted it and it'll be published in a couple months so really anything that anyone is passionate about and they feel like they want to get out to a wide urgent care audience we are the only if you could believe a peer-reviewed journal in urgent care medicine in the world so your writing and your your work will be available to a large audience. And we really have to work as a global community of urgent care clinicians to get this recognition in the larger house of medicine for what we all know when we work in urgent care is that this is not the emergency department. This is not a, a GP clinic. This is urgent care and we need to understand it better. And evidence-based medicine is what the approach is to figuring that out. So we just need ambitious and um, committed uh, clinician scientists to, to dive in and and start answering these questions. Yep. So if you're a registrar and you're doing your medical literature project as part of your your fellowship, um, I know that uh, Dr. Muhammad Asim um, uh, took his project and on um, clinical um, on um, imaging in scaphoid injuries, and that was published uh, last year. And um, it, it, that's an opportunity for you to um, to. to yeah, contribute to the body of work in in developing urgent care as the independent specialty that we all know that that it is. So, um, yeah. So, Josh, thank you again for coming back on the podcast. Thank you for your continued work with the journal because it is so important for us to to have it. And I hope some of our listeners will be inspired to to write you some some um, words or or submit a a, a bit of in, independent research in urgent care that that uh, can push push our specialty forward and um 
I wish you Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and I hope 2023 is a good one. The last couple of, every time we've talked, there's always been this sort of spectre of viral illnesses around us. So let's hope 2023 is a good one for everybody. But thank you. Yeah, thank you, Guy. I always enjoy our conversations and uh, yeah, happy holidays. Stay safe to your listeners. Um, you can find out how to submit an article at juicem.com slash, I believe, submit article. But uh, if you just type in J-U-C-M and Google submit an article, the instructions for authors will come right up. And we love being, we love the New Zealand urgent care community. I love your podcast, Guy. Can't wait to be back for the next one.